Campsite Media. Hello? What is the... What do you want what me to say? What is going on here? Like, oh, it's why? just, um... Chameleon. Chameleon. Okay. You're listening to Chameleon. A production of Campside Media. Oh. <laughs> A warning. There's some explicit language in this episode that you may not want kids to hear. This is an ad. It starts with the music you're hearing. Rock and roll. Kinda. The first thing you see in the ad is a really nice pool, with desert landscaping around it. We're in Las Vegas, of course. You see two people on lounge chairs. There's a pretty blonde woman in a bikini. She's with a pale, overweight guy with patches of gray hair on his chest and shoulders. From the context, you assume they're a couple, these two. Then you see another guy walking toward the pool. He's tall, lean, and fit, wearing tight-fitting blue swim trunks. The blonde woman on the lounge chair looks over to the pool as the good-looking man steps into the water. She pulls her sunglasses down to get a look at this guy in the pool. Her pale, overweight companion sees her ogling the man and slams shut the magazine he's reading. Actually, on closer inspection, it's not a magazine. It's a Bentley car catalog. Because this is a high-class pool scene over here. The man throws his arms up in the air as if to say, what the fuck? The woman then stands up with an angry look on her face, grabs her towel, and throws it at the out-of-shape man next to her. She storms off, and he waves his hand in a don't-come-back kind of way. Then, scene cut. The woman is in the pool with a fit, good-looking guy. She grabs him by the shoulders, no words spoken. And then you see the two kissing in the pool. A hard man is good to find. Be that man with solo wellness. And that's the ad for Emil Buari's new weight loss business in Las Vegas. Yeah, Emil's about to find a way out of jail and get back in the weight loss game. Oh, and that fit guy in the ad, the one kissing the woman in the pool? It's actually Emil. He's made himself the spokesmodel for his new company. I'm Trevor Aronson. From Campside Media, this is episode 10 of High Rollers, season two of Chameleon. So way before that ad was filmed, Emil still has some hoops to jump through before he gets out of jail. It's 2018, and he's still incarcerated. In the desert. In Pahrump. And biding his time laying on his bunk, working out in the gym, and doing yoga. On the outside, federal prosecutors are pushing forward with his criminal case. And Paul Pat is suing him for defamation. And he's winning. Emil doesn't have anyone there to defend him because he's locked up in jail. In fact, Paul is caught on a court recording joking about this. These guys are all nervous about this hearing. I said, listen, this is going to be the easiest hearing where you have nothing, nobody on the other side. So Paul asked for the judge to rule against Emil for millions of dollars in damages. I mean, I think one's reputation is priceless. In extent, you have to put a number on it. I'm seeking at least $4 million, if not more. Paul's evidence that Emil had written the defamatory reviews is pretty solid. He has internet records tracing the reviews back to accounts linked to Emil. And there's some evidence Paul didn't have, 
additional evidence I came across. In the FBI's undercover recordings, Emile appears to admit to his defamation campaign against Paul in a conversation he had with Dennis and Michelle. I'm very good on the internet. I hire people out of India and they can destroy a company online. Yeah. Like $5,000. So these people in India, they work for $100, $120, three people work 10 hours Holy shit. putting shit online. So I can decimate a company. So they, okay. So, so, you can, so you, they can put all kinds of fucking, just this guy's oh, a douchebag. Yeah. I hired him uh, and he lost the thing. Uh, I would decimate his, his business. And okay. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I sent him an anonymous email, email what, what? that he doesn't drop it dismiss the case without prejudice, yeah. I'm taking it to the next level. Yeah. A judge later agrees that Emil is responsible for the defamatory reviews. He rules in Paul's favor, in a default judgment, for a staggering amount of damages. $4.1 million against Emil and $550,000 against Emil's girlfriend, Kim Milko. But even with this huge amount of money to pay Paul, somehow things take a turn for the better for Emil. Way better. The Justice Department has, at this point, already offered Emil a plea deal, which would have come with a sentence of 30 months. Emil is convinced the case is dirty, and he refuses to take the plea. And the government's lawyer admits in court that Emil has already spent as much time behind bars as he would have had he taken the government's plea deal. The plea agreement we had had him at a level 19 with the three points for acceptance, which would have been a 30-month low end. He's been in about 27 months, so with good time, he would be uh, available to release. So the judge agrees to release Emil, finally, pending trial. I asked Emil how he got through more than two years in jail and how he felt when he got out. I grew up in Nigeria, Africa, and Beirut, Lebanon, so I've seen hell actually take place. I've seen six-year-old kids, African kids, walk two miles in bare feet just to get water bucket and walk back um, and then go live in a hut and with six other kids and family members and so on. I mean, that's, and that's permanent. There's absolutely no hope to get away from that. So that's real hell. I always knew Pahrump. The way I got, it was hell and it was a shithole and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I always knew it would be over and I always knew that we would win and it, then it would be our turn. But in general, yes, it was a shithole. And of course, I don't want to go back. Nobody wants to go back there as opposed to being here. But you get through things in certain ways. After his release, Emil vows to take the criminal case to trial. In a court filing, his lawyer uses the research of Jeff Danik, the former FBI agent who's helping Gus, to describe how Michelle, the informant, was allegedly running scams on Emil while he was under federal investigation. Federal prosecutors acknowledge, in a reply, that the government is looking into those accusations to determine if they are accurate. And in a motion to dismiss the charges, Emil makes clear that if the government is going to put him on trial, he's going to put the government on trial, delving into how the case started and the actions of the agents and the informant. And incredibly enough, that is, apparently, a fight the Justice Department doesn't want to have. Prosecutors offer Emil a deferred prosecution agreement, meaning that if he stays out of trouble for six months, all the charges will be dropped. Well, basically, it's a dismissal um, with uh, a face-saving mechanism attached to it. But I didn't stick to a single uh, condition on that, on that PTD. I didn't get a job. I flew right away to Costa Rica. And I didn't stick to a single condition of it, and they still dismissed the case. Which is extraordinary. The Justice Department has a conviction rate north of 90%. The whole thing was a farce. 
Everyone had their own personal agenda, whether it was Paul Pada having a personal agenda, Michel Benamar had his own agenda, how much to party, how much fun to have while we're doing this. So everyone had their own little agenda here and it kind of worked, worked for a while, yeah. So with Emil out of jail, I head back to Las Vegas. It's September 2020. There's a pandemic. And it's a weird time to be here. Las Vegas Boulevard is the emptiest I've ever seen it. Normally, the Strip is wall-to-wall people. During the time I'm here, though, the Strip appears mostly empty. I'm driving a few miles west of the city's famous casinos to meet Emil at his new weight loss clinic. Emil's been busy. Trevor, come on in. How are you? Good, how are you? Fine, thanks. Is it a good time? Yes, of course. Come on in. I just want to... Check something with the bank right now. I don't think I was double charged for my rent. Hmm. Emil's new weight loss clinic is in a strip mall and surrounded by other health and beauty businesses. There's a dermatologist, an eyelash studio, a plastic surgeon, a hair salon. It's a full-service strip mall. If you take things too far, spend too much money trying to make yourself look young and beautiful, there's even a bankruptcy lawyer here too. And Emil's still the consummate salesman. Two years, I believe this company will be generating about $5 million in revenue. Profits will probably be 50% and take it from there. I've done it before a couple of times, so there's nothing now. I'm much, I'm much smarter than before. Emil sells the same HCG diet he did before. But now he's also selling what he's advertising as weight loss shots, which are, in fact, B12 injections. Just as with the HCG diet, there's no medical evidence to support claims that B12 injections help you lose weight. But again, as with the HCG diet, Emil claims B12 shots just work, miraculously. Helps energy, stress, stamina, anxiety, raises metabolism. Um, then they follow the diet, they lose a lot of weight. I mean, one of my patients... And Emil's got a new girlfriend when I visit, Erica Kimball, a nurse practitioner who specializes in dermatology. She knows about Emil's arrest and the money laundering. Emil has told her all about Operation Botox and about how the FBI guys use the sting as a vehicle to party in restaurants and clubs on the government dime, which Erica finds amusing, since, to her disappointment, she's discovered Emil isn't much of a partier himself. He doesn't really drink. He goes to bed early. He doesn't like nightclubs. He likes to go to the gym. He likes to eat super healthy. His, like, big day out is going to Whole Foods. <laughs> Or to the movie theaters, which we can't do anymore. He doesn't like going to restaurants. Like, I have to, like, pull him out of the house to get him places, so... As I'm talking to Emil and Erica, one of Emil's patients walks in. She's here for Emil's B12 injections. Hi. This is Dr. Erica. This is Trevor. So, uh, we're going to give her some shots. Yeah, 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 of course. You can go to my room. Sure. We're being interviewed by... um, Good for you. <laughs> you are a very popular guy. Yes. Yes. And you are such a good guy. So. <laughs> Thank you. For Emil, life's getting back to normal. But there's been a lot of damage left behind from Operation Botox. I've asked Emil several times, and in different ways, if he regrets getting his brother Gus, his girlfriend Kim, and his friend Mary mixed up in the FBI sting. I can never get an answer I find satisfying. Do you feel bad? Like, uh, absolutely, I do. Yes. And that's all Emil will really say. But Operation Botox has changed Emil's relationships with the others. His friend Mary isn't one to hold a grudge. And so she blames herself as much as Emil. 
she was stupid, she says. I really didn't get it. I did not get it at all <laughs> about what was going on. What an idiot. I bleached my hair blonde, so I'm not an embarrassment to brunettes, okay? <laughs> so anyways, I was like, oh my God, what an idiot. So, yeah. Mary has since moved from Las Vegas to Florida. She and Emil are still in touch. For Emil and Kim, his girlfriend during Operation Botox, the one in the supposed love triangle with Paul Pata, things are much different. I asked Emil about his relationship with Kim. We just had different visions. She wanted nothing to do with the United States anymore. She didn't want to come back to Vegas. She hates it here, a lot of what happened. And so we basically broke up. Kim, who spoke to me at length several times when I first started researching Operation Botox, backed out of participating more fully in this podcast. I'd offered to interview her in Costa Rica, where she now lives. But she told me she blamed Emil for everything that happened, for pulling her into the FBI undercover sting. And she didn't want to be associated with Emil anymore, even in such an indirect way. Hey, Trevor, how are you? It's Kim. This is a recorded message Kim sent me. I think I'm going to hold off for just a little bit as far as doing this interview. Again, I'm very nervous about you speaking to Emil because he's an insane maniac. But of all the damage done, Emil should probably be most remorseful about what happened to his brother Gus. I told Emil that I was surprised Gus still talked to him at this point, that I thought Gus should be furious with him. Here's Emil talking about Gus. No, absolutely. And he had every right to be. He's like, look, what did you get me involved in and stuff like that? And I'm like, listen, this isn't this isn't a clear cut thing. I said to Hassan, listen, this case is corrupt. It's going to get dismissed. This is the moral cover Emil has constructed for himself. Yeah, he did stuff wrong. He fucked up. He admits that. But the real corruption here, according to Emil, was that the FBI and Paul Pata, the lawyer he was feuding with, had conspired to make all this happen as part of some sort of revenge plot. It's unfortunate, but Gus just got caught up in that. That's how Emil appears to frame everything in his mind. That's what he seems to believe. To me, it's a way for Emil to abdicate his responsibility for what happened. More after the break. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. So, Gus, while he's in the detention center with Emil, things start looking up for him, too. The government offers him pretrial diversion, probation of a sort. Keep your nose clean for a specified amount of time, and the government will drop the charges. Most people would jump at a pretrial diversion agreement. This is Gus's lawyer, 
Ben Durham. Gus said no way he wasn't signing it, uh, which just further confirmed to me that he you know, was actually innocent and hadn't done anything wrong. That would have been his ticket out of jail uh, at that point. And he said, no, I'm going to sit here until it's dismissed. I'm not signing any kind of agreement. So Gus is sitting in jail while Ben devises a strategy to get him out and get the charges dropped. Ben decides to pursue outrageous government conduct. Outrageous government conduct sounds like a rhetorical phrase, but it's actually a legal term of art, meaning that the government's intentions and conduct were so outrageous that moving forward with a criminal prosecution violates a defendant's due process rights. In my opinion, I felt like it it fell squarely within the, the parameters of outrageous government conduct. The government filed a a half-assed response uh, to to the motion. It was set for a hearing a couple times, got pushed back. Um, I don't think that they wanted to have a hearing on the motion. Uh, I don't think they wanted us to to delve into some of those those things that had happened. Uh, So we sat down with the U.S. attorney, uh, with our investigator, kind of set forth what we thought had happened and what the evidence was. Uh, and they took it up to the higher-ups, and they have finally agreed to dismiss. So after a year in jail, Gus is about to be set free. He just doesn't know it. The government filed a motion to dismiss, and I didn't even know. And even everyone around, they're like, dude, your case is dismissed? Hey, fool, dude, your case got dismissed? I'm like, yeah, Mike, well, I don't know. That's what I heard. That's what I'm hearing right now with you. Later, a corrections officer comes for Gus. Pack your stuff, he tells him. The whole jail erupts in applause. Some of the guys there, they came to say bye. They shook my hands. They fist pumped. Some other guys say, so you were actually innocent, huh? I was like, yeah, I was. I told you I was innocent. Like, man, I can't believe it, man. You're the only guy I ever met that was innocent. I've never met anybody who was innocent except you. Gus goes out as a free man. They just unshackled me. That was it. Gave me a bottle of water. I had no money, no phone, no ID. Just a bottle of water, 11.30 at night in Las Vegas. But his life is wrecked. His business is done. The weight loss clinics in Florida closed in his absence. His wife and son are now living in another country. A corrections officer just drops him off in downtown Las Vegas. They made me a homeless guy. Uh, In a way, I was like, man, I wish I could be on my bunk and go to sleep. But let's not think that way. You're a free man now. So I walked next to Fremont Street in Vegas, and there was this party, um, outdoor party, and I just walked into it. And I remember looking at these go-go girls dancing on the bar. Like, how? what a contrast. All of a sudden, now I'm looking at women and free people, and I'm, like, looking, and my clothes are unironed, and I look disheveled. I, my eyes are blotched red. I was tired. I was hungry. Um, and I still had to walk. But I danced a bit, so yeah, I danced and waved my hands a bit with them, with these people like dancing. And like think if you guys knew where I was in the last 30 minutes, like like the last hour, you know, like how funny nobody just has, nobody knows, everyone's just drinking and laughing. An hour ago I was in fucking detention. Broke and looking like a homeless man, Gus is trying to figure out what to do. He starts asking around among the partiers on Fremont Street. If he can use someone's phone, he gets a lot of no's. Then someone finally lets Gus use a phone. The only number he has memorized is for a friend in Los Angeles. He answered it. I said, I mean, it's me. He's like, man, like, are you okay? Can I get, what can I do for you? 
can I send you money? I'm like, well, no, because I don't have an ID. How am I going to get money anyways? He's like, what the fuck are we going to do? Gus tells his friend to contact his lawyer, but they both know there's no way he'll be able to get a hold of him until the next morning. So I had to walk the streets of Vegas. With nowhere to go, Gus sleeps on a bench outside an Apple store. Apparently nobody bothered me. They both thought I was a drunk guy in Vegas, a very normal thing. The next morning, Gus walks to the Venetian, a casino on the Strip, to use the bathroom. I look like a frickin' bum. Um, you know, uh, my hair was terrible. Then brush my teeth, I had to wash my face. An employee at the casino strikes up a conversation with Gus, gives him a bottle of water, and then offers to make a phone call for him. Ben, Gus's lawyer, picks him up at the Venetian. And Ben's got some cash, money that Gus's friend from Los Angeles had sent. So um, he put me up in a hotel, um, uh, courtesy of my buddies sending me money, and the best sleep I ever had was like 15 hours of straight sleep darkness. And in the morning, all of a sudden, my buddy Amin had flown in with another friend of mine visiting from Dubai. And he, they came in and they hugged me and they were happy. And um, then we got my wife on the phone. And um, that's my story of how I got out. Gus wants to rebuild his life in the United States and bring his wife and son back from Turkey. But immigration officials have put what's known as a detainer on him, a bureaucratic flag in a U.S. government database that means that he could be detained by police and potentially deported. The government's logic in all this is basically, Gus came to the United States on an investor visa to start and run a business. Now that his business is closed, Gus's investor visa isn't good any longer, so he needs to leave the country. Which is messed up, right? The U.S. government put Gus out of business. And now, the U.S. government is threatening to deport him because he's out of business. Gus's only hope of staying in the United States is finding a way to start his business again, and quickly. But now, Gus has a reputational problem. Anytime someone Googles his name, they see those criminal charges. Gus Buari, money launderer. My reputation is destroyed. I, it's still destroyed online. Gus's whole situation is Kafkaesque. More after the break. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. After his release from jail, Gus tries to rebuild his life in the United States. From a rented apartment in suburban Las Vegas, he tries to find a way to start his weight loss clinics back up. Gus's wife, Esra, and son, Sean, visit him in Las Vegas in the hopes that they can find a way to stay. But for Gus, too much damage is done. Gus can't get his business up and running again. He's also concerned that, given his questionable visa status after his release from jail, staying in the country longer could have severe consequences. 
If he were to be deported, the U.S. government might never allow him to come back to America. So Gus boards a flight to Turkey to join his wife and son there. His life in the United States, his apartment, his businesses in Miami, his hopes of raising a son in America, Gus loses everything in the end. One of the reasons it's odd that the FBI went after Gus so hard was that Emil was caught on tape during the FBI sting, plainly telling Dennis and Michelle that Gus isn't a bad guy, isn't the type of guy who will launder money. He's not like me. He's not been fucked by life yet. He's not walking. He's still a real innocent. He's not like me. He's not been fucked by life yet. That's what Emil told Dennis and Michelle. What Emil meant was that Gus wasn't jaded, wasn't as cutthroat and opportunistic as he is, wasn't willing to break the rules. Gus's downfall, his flaw, was that he trusted his brother. And by trusting Emil, Gus finally got fucked by life. I'm with Gus in Istanbul, Turkey. It's a nice day. Sunny, temperate weather, a cool breeze. Gus is walking to his son's school to pick him up, as he does most days. We can just wait here. A few minutes later, Gus's son Sean walks out. He's five years old, and he has a thick mop of black curly hair that falls below his chin line. He's a cute kid. That's Sean. Hello. How are you? Good, how are you? Hey, Sean. How's it going? Gus and Sean start walking back to their apartment in Istanbul. It's rush hour, so there's a lot of road noise. Did you draw anything today? Paint anything today? Yeah. What did you do? Sean thinks about what he's going to say as a truck passes. A moon and a guy are sitting on the moon. A moon and a guy sitting on the moon? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Did you talk with your friends about the Avengers again today? Yeah. Who's your favorite Avenger? Flash. Flash? <laughs> Flash is DC. He's not an Avenger. I like Flash. Since when do you like Flash? I like Flash. I like Flash. Sean was so young when he and his mother flew from Miami to Turkey that life in Turkey is the only one he's really known. And it's not a bad life. Gus, Esra, and Sean have a really nice apartment in Istanbul, near a newly built high-end shopping mall called the Zorlu Center. Esra is teaching English, and Gus is trying to find a way to build back his weight loss business, which is a big challenge here, since he doesn't speak Turkish. I don't know if I'm gonna be here in the long term or not, but as a stepping stone, it's where I need to be. My my, my wife's working, um, she pays the bills mostly. I have some uh, money I have aside, but uh, you know, it's dwindling. I love the weight wellness business, so I'm gonna figure it out. I'm not worried. I'm, um, I've always been a confident guy in my abilities and stuff. I don't panic. Um, I know what I can achieve and I will achieve what I need to achieve. Um, my kid is happy, Sean is very happy, um, so that's good. But Gus hasn't given up on returning to the United States. Toward that goal, Gus recently filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government and agents Chuck Rowe and Dennis Lau. The lawsuit alleges that Chuck and Dennis used Operation Botox 
to violate Gus's civil rights in order to, and I quote, drink, carouse, paw women, and spend wads of taxpayer money in investigating hapless nobodies and charging them with lurid crimes to justify their waste, fraud, and abuse. A lawyer representing Chuck and Dennis is arguing that the former FBI agents are entitled to something called qualified immunity, a legal doctrine that shields government officials from being held personally liable for constitutional violations. My civil rights complaint against the government, the U.S. government right now, is that um, you know there was negligence and a responsibility on their part on the people who represented the, the country, the institution, the United States. The Department of Justice attorney admits the evidence against me was slight and marginal. You know, it's unfortunate that I had to go through all this for a slight and marginal case. So I kept pushing for my day in court, and I never got my day in court. <laughs> Even until today, it's the after the case, I'm still pushing for my day in court. Now to get here till today, to where I am today with my wife, you know, and my son being happy, I didn't, this, it, this was difficult to get to. This is like a um, couple of years after, like these couple of years have been very, very difficult. Gus's lawsuit against the government is seeking as much as $1 million in financial damages. It's also Gus's hope that if he can get the U.S. government to admit its wrongs in Operation Botox, he can negotiate new visas in a way to bring his family back to the United States. But Gus and his family may never get back. For now, he's learning to be content where he is, exiled in Istanbul. In the early afternoon, on a recent day, Gus and Sean are lining up his toys in the living room of their apartment. It's something they do often. Okay, tell you what, now put the good guys on one side and the bad guys on one side, and let's play a game. Yeah, but he doesn't have a lane, so I don't have to find his lane. Sean is digging through his toys, looking for the missing leg of one of his action figures. After a few minutes, he finds it and starts assembling his toys. Good guys on one side, bad guys on the other. So that's what we do when we play games. We put like good guys on one side, bad guys on one side, and then we have to have something epic in the background. You know, like the Optimus Prime, <laughs> the Transformers song. Because when I was a kid too, I used to play with Transformers, I used to have Transformers. So, at least we can relate to that each. Ready? No. Okay, we're taking vengeance on bad guys. We're gonna beat the bad guys. Okay, choose you guys. Who should I be? It's all a game here, in Gus's apartment in Istanbul. The good guys versus the bad guys. But Gus is hoping that one day soon, back in the United States, he'll finally beat the bad guys. And everyone will realize what he's been saying all along. He's the real good guy in all this. There's also an alternative ending to think about. A what-could-have-happened story. Gus was the one who listened to the FBI's secret recordings, scoured the evidence, and figured out what happened in Operation Botox. He's the one who exposed the FBI's abuses in the case. But what if the Justice Department hadn't indicted Gus? 
he never would have gone through the evidence and revealed what really happened. And I don't think Emil, Mary, or Kim would have done what Gus did. They would have, probably, taken plea deals. And in the end, none of the FBI's behavior in Operation Botox would have come to light. And so, it makes me wonder, how many more cases like Operation Botox are out there? And we just never hear about them. This was High Rollers. Chameleon Season 2 comes from Campsite Media. It's hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Our executive producers are Vanessa Gregoriadis and Adam Hoff. Alex Yablon fact-checked the series. Marco Williams also contributed to research. Mark McAdam composed the theme song. Doug Slaywin and Sam Leeds provided production support. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed High Rollers, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take me in, Sin City.